Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This past week on my Facebook feed, does anybody have one of those? This past week, Facebook posted an article to help me know how to identify fake news. Did you get this? There are 10 steps that they gave, and uh, I've memorized all 10. Okay, just kidding. I can't even memorize the songs we sing every week, haven't you noticed? Um, There are these 10 steps that they gave for identifying fake news. One step is be be skeptical of headlines. I'm kind of a skeptic, so that's not very hard for me. Uh, Look closely at the source, the the URL. Uh, Does it look legit? Does it say NewYorkTimes.com or does it say (laughs) NewYorkTimes.net? Does it look like it's some knockoff website? Investigate the source. Uh, Look into who's reporting it. Watch for unusual formatting, and what they mean by this is, is there a lot of errors in the spelling? Does it look like a middle schooler or maybe perhaps a foreigner who doesn't speak English wrote it? Sorry about that to the middle schoolers. Um, Consider the photos. The photos could be doctored long before there was fake news or fake photos. And the photos could be faked. Inspect the dates. Is the timeline, is, does it make sense or does it jump all over the place and you're having trouble following the events? Uh, check the evidence. Uh, check the author's sources. Read up on it from other places. So that leads the other one. Look at other reports. And then, here's one that I've gotten in trouble with before. Is the story a joke? Sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between satire and reality. I've posted some things that are, that are satire, and I've, I've gotten in trouble a couple times. And then, number ten, remember that some stories are intentionally false. And that's the one that's, that I find weird. I guess I tend to be a truth, truthful-minded person. Part of that is my dad beat a lie out of me one time, kind of like what's going to happen over there. And uh, I I lied to my father one time. I don't even remember what the context or the content of the lie was because it was just beating so well out of me. But I remember lying to him and I, I never did it again. And this whole idea that there is intentionally false stories in the media I find fascinating. There was recently a reporter that wanted to hunt down one of these fake news websites. And so they found a suspicious article. It was titled, FBI agent suspected in Hillary email leaks found dead in apparent murder-suicide. That's a good headline. I mean, depending on your political persuasion, that's an interesting headline. And it was from a website called the DenverGuardian.com. 
Now, I grew up in Denver. I lived in Denver all my life. I've never, ever, ever heard of the Denver Guardian. But there was a DenverGuardian.com. They were reporting FBI agents suspected in Hillary email links found dead in apparent murder-suicide. This article was shared 1.6 million times on Facebook. But it was completely and utterly false. They could only find the article on one website, and that is the DenverGuardian.com. Now, this reporter, he decided to try to track down the owner of this particular website. And it was a little hard because it was listed anonymously, but they dug and they dug. And the internet, by the way, if you don't know this, leaves a paper trail digitally. You can find anywhere you've gone, at least if you're smart enough. They found the guy who owns the website. His name is Justin Kohler. He lives in L.A. He's 40. He has a wife and two kids. And he owns a media company called Disinfo Media. Disinfo Media. He employs 20 to 25 writers. He owns numerous fake email or fake websites. Denver Guardian being one of them. And he writes stories, his writers write stories that are completely and utterly made up. One that they were able to make up that got picked up by the media and then got picked up by a politician in Colorado was a story about how people on food stamps were using their food stamps to buy marijuana. And it led to a politician to propose a law that people couldn't do that. And it was fake news. Nobody was ever doing that. Now, why would somebody want to lie like this? Why would somebody want to create fake news websites? What's Justin's angle? What does he get out of this? Well, he wouldn't come clean completely with a reporter, but he did say, reports of people who have fake news sites making $10,000 to $30,000 a month are true. Justin makes between ten dollars and $30,000 a month from fake news. Why? How? It's called advertising. For every single person that clicks on that fake news headline and goes to his website, he gets some money from advertisers on his site. He makes a lot of money, and he's been doing this for over five years. And it's not just him. There are thousands of fake news websites. It's interesting because perhaps some of you are here today, and you are a skeptic when it comes to the headline of Easter. Perhaps you are a skeptic and you, you think, ah, that doesn't sound possible. In fact, it sounds impossible. The headline being, Christ is risen. Perhaps you're a skeptic. Perhaps you're an unbeliever. Perhaps you are someone who wrestles. Maybe you've already settled it in your mind that there is no way this could be true news. It sounds like fake news. And today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at a passage in the book of Matthew. And this passage that Kate is going to come up and read to us out of Matthew 28, 1 through 10, is a passage of an eyewitness report. 
the day of Christ's resurrection. Listen closely. See if your skepticism is validated. Matthew 28, 1-10. After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance... lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen. Just as he said, come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples. He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them, greeting, he said. They they came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. We should applaud Kate because she was very nervous. Now she'll do it at Christmas too. Okay. You know, she carries a gun some days. I should watch myself. Kate read to us this very familiar, famous passage that tells us about that day that Christ rose from the dead. And one of the things that I want you to think about is this first question. Is it possible? Is it possible that this is true? That Jesus Christ rose from the dead? Now, for me, if you grew up in church world like me, I started going to church uh, before I had consciousness because my mom was going and I went with her. Uh, I have always believed the resurrection story. You could call it indoctrination. You could call it brainwashing. You could call it, I actually came to faith in Christ as a little kid. But I have always believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have never doubted it as a historical fact. And perhaps you are like me. You grew up in church world and you have never doubted the resurrection. But perhaps some of you haven't grown up in church world. Perhaps some of you are skeptics. Perhaps some of you do not believe in God. Perhaps some of you don't know if you believe in God. And I want to pose the question, is it possible? Is this account that Matthew gives gives us, that Jesus rose from the dead, is it possible? Another question, another way to ask this question would be, do you believe in God? Do you believe in God? Because if you believe in God like I believe in God, then it seems to me that raising somebody from the dead would be exceptionally easy for God to do. If he made everything that we see, if he made everyone we know, this would be phenomenally easy for an all-powerful God to pull off, to raise somebody from the dead. 
So I think at the heart of this question is, do you believe in God? But I want you to wrestle with this question. If you don't believe in God, how did life get here? How is it we're here? You see, if you believe in God, then you believe that anything is, that nothing is impossible. If you believe in God, you believe that nothing is impossible. But if you don't believe in God, then you believe, and I'm going to make this argument, that anything is possible. See, if I ask you, how did life happen? How did we get here? The answer has to be this. It just happened. It just happened. Life just happened. And if life just happened, why can't a resurrection from the dead just happen? It sounds to me that if you don't believe in God and that life just happened, it sounds like anything is possible. It sounds like there is no rules because there would be nobody to give the rules. There would be no laws because there's nobody to write the laws or execute the laws or make sense of those laws to make sure those laws are happening. If all that exists just happened, then the impossible has happened once before. If life just sprung out out of nothing, then anything is possible because it has already happened. I'm just being very, very rational at this point to say that either way, it's impossible to say that the resurrection is impossible. You cannot say that the resurrection is impossible. So, I would argue that it's possible. It is completely and utterly within the realm of possibility that God would raise Christ from the dead. Or, if you don't believe in God, and you don't know whether you believe in God, that, hey, life sprung up out of nothing once before. Why can't somebody spring up out of the grave? Now, Matthew tells us that God raised Jesus from the dead. And one of the things I want us to wrestle with is, is it true? Is this a fake news report or is this true news? What evidence does Matthew give us that this is true? Well, if Kate had kept reading, but I could only get 10 verses out of her. Verses 13 and 14 say this. Actually, I'll just pick it up at verse 11 where she stopped. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while you were sleeping. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. In fact, this story is still circulated today, 2,000 years later. And it's fascinating to me because why would Matthew include a fake news report in his report? Why would Matthew give you the counter-report if he's trying to build the most reputable report? If, he, if he's making this up, why would he give two made-up versions of it? He rose from the dead, I'm making that up, and I'm also telling you they made up a story about him 
being made up from raising from the dead. You see, Matthew, I think, is telling us it's true. This happened. And they had to devise a fake news report to try to kill the church. They created a fake report so that they could put down this religion, this movement, this truth that Christ had risen from the dead. In fact, there is absolutely no reason whatsoever that Christianity should exist today. All they had to do was produce the body of Christ. All they had to do was produce his body and Christianity would have died just like Christ died. But they couldn't. They couldn't produce the body. I would argue that this report from Matthew for sure demonstrates that there was an open tomb. That there was an empty tomb. What for sure we know is Matthew says the tomb is empty because Jesus raised. And those who oppose and don't like Jesus are saying the tomb's empty. What's our story? His story is, it's empty because God raised him from the dead. The, the other folks, those who have a lot to lose, those in power, the religious leaders who don't want Jesus alive, who killed him in the first place, their account of why the tomb is empty is the disciples stolen while Roman guards slept at night. Do you know much about the Romans? Steve Devator is about one of the few Romans I've ever met in my life. Uh, actually, every time I talked about the Romans, he said, hey, you're, you're talking about my people, which then I felt like I was talking about the mob or the mafia or something when he said that to me. The Romans, though, if you were in the Roman army, they were brutal. They were vicious. You would not take a nap on guard duty in the Roman army. Our army, you wouldn't take a nap on guard duty. If you did, there would be some punishment. In the Roman army, the punishment was death. Our, Roman, our army wouldn't kill you. They'd do some sort of punishment to you. I'm pretty sure they wouldn't take you outside and shoot you. But in the Roman army, they'd shoot you dead. With an arrow, if they have one, a sword, a spear, whatever is available, they would kill you. That's why they go on and say, hey, if this gets back to the governor, we'll cover for you. We'll cover for you. We don't want you in trouble. So Matthew for sure is telling us that the tomb, the grave, is empty. There's another detail he gives us that I think is really important. And to our modern ears, we don't think anything of it. We don't think anything of this, and it shows how far culture has progressed, and, and in very good ways, how far culture has progressed in the last 2,000 years. But the thing that is striking, and it's not only spoken about in Matthew, but it's also in Mark and Luke and in John, and that is just this. When Jesus first appeared, he did not appear to his brothers, he appeared to his sisters. When Jesus first appeared, he appeared to his sisters. Now, not blood relation sisters, but those who follow and love Christ, women. In the ancient world, 
And by the way, we still have all sorts of gender issues going on in our culture. There's all sorts of dialogue going on about the fair and equal treatment of men and women. And that's a good value. In fact, we're going to see that Jesus was pro-women. Jesus upset, overturned the way that the ancient culture thought about women when he did this. He intentionally appeared first to women. And I think this is something that the church would have never made up. The reason the church never would have made this up is because the Greeks, the Romans, and the Hebrews, you can find this in the Old Testament, a woman's testimony was not allowed in court. A woman's testimony would not be uh, evidence that could be used in favor or against a particular case in court. Women could not, for the most part, inherit property. Women were second-class citizens in the ancient world. And I think it is a powerful statement by Christ to demonstrate the value of women when he appears to them first. Jesus is challenging this cultural notion. And sadly, through the history of the church, it gets whitewashed. It gets removed that women were the first at the tomb. But the scriptures stay true to this story. That Jesus appeared to his sisters and they were to go and tell the brothers what they saw. They were to go find the brothers and say, hey, he'll meet you in Galilee. We've seen Jesus resurrected. Now, I would argue that if Matthew is making this story up, these are not the witnesses he's going to pick. These are not the witnesses he's going to pick. If you are trying to convince someone of the validity of a lie, do you pick other liars to back you up? Do you pick people that you know they won't believe? Or do you pick reputable sources? Do you pick things that say, oh yeah, well, if the New York Times, if the Ray Gazette, if the Yuma Pioneer, you're not going to appeal to things that they would not believe. And in their culture, they're predisposed. There's a rule. Women's testimony is not admissible in court. The only reason Matthew would say that women saw Jesus resurrected from the dead is if Jesus was seen by women resurrected from the dead. It's the only reason. It's the only explanation for this account that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all give us about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Well, there's many other proofs. That's just two I wanted to hit real quick because everybody's ham is at work at home. And you're thinking, okay, it's possible and it's true. But if it's true, does it matter? If Jesus rose from the dead, does it really matter? What difference does it make? If the resurrection happened, what do we need to do about it? Do we just need to come to church uh, once a year? By the way, we have church next week at 9.30 for Christian church. We'd love to have you there. Do we need to 
think about something, consider something? What is it that we need to do? Well, like again, like I said, I couldn't get Kate to read much more. He, she's going to shoot me after this service. <laughs> if we keep reading in verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. There's only eleven because Judas went and hung himself. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Verse 17. Man, that's a great, powerful verse. Some of you need to circle, highlight, underline that verse. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Have you ever heard words coming out of your mouth, or maybe a friend's mouth, or a relative's mouth, a skeptic's mouth? You know what? If Jesus just showed up in the flesh, then I'd believe. If God just showed up and did this for me, then I'd believe. If he just showed up and took care of this, then I'd believe. You know what? He did it in Matthew 17. He showed up in the flesh, and Matthew reports to us, some worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus showed up in the flesh, and there were still those who doubted. There are times when uh, I'm asked to do weddings. And I try to get together with a couple and talk with them about what they're wanting in their marriage and what they're thinking about wedding life and marriage life and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of times couples, you know, they say, oh, he's just perfect. Um, I love him. There's no worries in my mind. I I, he, I just I found the one, and I have no concerns whatsoever. And the guys, that was the guy, by the way. And, and uh, no. But when a husband, when a, when a, when a, an engaged couple comes to me and talks like that, I say, "You're not thinking. You're not thinking." If you say, I have no concerns, I have no worries, I found the one, we're going to be happily ever after, married forever, I tell them, you're not thinking. If you don't have doubts, you're not thinking. And this applies to everything. It applies to who we choose to marry, it applies to how we invest our money, and it applies to whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead. If we sit around and think about it, we're always going to have doubts, because that's the nature of being rational. That's the nature of thinking. There's always another argument. There's always another book. There's always another author. There's always another subject. There's always something to think about, ponder, wrestle through, try to figure out. There's always another incident in life. There's always another struggle, always another problem. There's always another diagnosis. There's always another funeral. There's always something that causes us to doubt, as we think about it, whether or not Christ rose from the dead. Now, I am not making an argument that Christianity is irrational. That Christian and Christianity, following Jesus, asks you to check your brain at the door and take a leap of faith. But following Christ is more than rational thought. It is completely and utterly rational thought, but it is more than rational thought. Faith is more than rational thought. Faith is commitment. Faith is commitment. You see, that couple who comes and talks about, oh, we love each other, it's going to be fantastic, he's the one, everything's going to be fantastic and wonderful. I'd sound like Donald Trump. Fantastic, fantastic. fantastic. 
You see, the only way to know if their ideas, their thoughts, their dreams, their hopes is, are true is what? To make the commitment. That's the only way. Because my guess is, like, you know, married people, right? Any married people in the room today? You get a year into it? You get two years into it? You get five years into it? You get 10 years, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, whatever. You get a lot of years into this thing, and you have doubts. You wrestle. You wonder. Prince Charming ain't so princely or charming anymore. Sleeping Beauty sleeps, but the beauty beats. Right? It's not quite what we had dreamed and hoped for and thought it would be. And so, what do you do with this information in a marriage? What do you do with this information with Christ? You have to make the commitment. You have to commit to follow Him. Once you know it's true, you see, rational thought can only get you to the point where you say, yeah, it's probably true. Probably true. Yeah, she's probably the one for me. Yeah, he's good enough. The only way to find out, the only way to test this is to commit. Now, many of you have done this. Many of you have made a commitment to follow Jesus Christ. Many of you have decided when you're a little kid. Some of you decide when you're a big kid. Some of you are still kids. And you're decided. And you have made a commitment to follow Jesus. And let me tell you, friends, one thing for sure is going on for you. You will have opportunity to doubt nearly daily. You will have opportunity to walk away from Christ nearly daily. And as the church loses home field advantage in this culture, as the culture becomes more and more of an antagonist to the church in the States, there will be more and more opportunities to fall away and walk away from Jesus Christ. And if you have decided to follow Him, then daily, here's how Jesus put it, pick up your cross and follow me. We have to commit over and over and over and over again to follow Christ. Now, if this is all new language to you, if you were brought here because they promised, hey, it's not at a church, it's at a school, so it can't fall down on you entering in. And this is all, you know, maybe you heard this when you were a kid, maybe you thought you knew all this stuff and you already got it, and yeah, it's probably true. But you've never committed. You've never decided, you know what, this is going to be what defines me. This is going to be what I make my central belief, my, my central commitment in my life. Perhaps you are just one of those fringe folks that, uh, you know, when it works, then you do it. If it feels good, then you do it. If everybody else is doing it, then you do it. If it's the right time to do it, then you do it. You see, that's not commitment. That's jumping on and off and going with the flow. In sports, we call them bandwagon fans. You see, on Easter Sunday and on Christmas Eve, Jesus has a lot of bandwagon fans. There's a lot of people who jump on the bandwagon 
And they jump on and they're happy to do it. But you know what? The joy that comes from following Christ week in, week out, day in, day out, is so much sweeter if you stay on the bandwagon all the time. How do I know this to be true? Because I'm a Denver Broncos fan. Because I'm a Colorado Rockies fan. You see, if I just became all of a sudden a New York, New England Patriots fan, which hurts my heart to say, <laughs> or God forbid, Satan takes over the NFL and the Raiders win the Super Bowl. And I decide, hey, I want to be, I'm, a, I'm about winners. I'm about winners. I'm going to be a Raiders fan because they won the Super Bowl. I'm going to be a winner. You know, to jump on the bandwagon, yeah, it's kind of fun. It's exciting. You get some cool swag. You get a cool t-shirt. You get a cool hat. But boy, to be raised in Denver, Colorado, to be given your first orange crush football shirt, to wear it proudly at Disneyland in 1976 with your brother and sister. And everybody could just see you're a Bronco fan. And then in 77, we go to the Super Bowl and we get killed by the Cowboys. And then we show up again. And Elway is able to take the team back to the Super Bowl. And time and time and time again, we get throttled. But your allegiance never changes. Your long-suffering, your waiting, your patient, you're waiting. You're patient. And then Elway and TD and Shannon Sharp, they get them back to the Super Bowl. And then Elway does that, that dive. Now the bandwagon fans, yay, cool dive. But the long-suffering, I wore my Orange Crush jersey at Disneyland in 1975 before the Broncos were anybody. Boy, the joy of that first Super Bowl win. The joy of that second win. The joy of that third win. Are you a bandwagon fan of Jesus? See, Jesus isn't interested in fans. Jesus isn't interested in how big his bandwagon is. In fact, he said things like this. And he doesn't sound like a very nice guy when he says them. But he says... The way to follow me, the gate is narrow, and few will fight, and few will enter. But he said the gate that goes to destruction is broad, and many will take it. Are you only a fan of Christ, or are you a committed follower of Christ? Imagine tomorrow morning if you're married and you turn to your wife and you said, you know, I'm really a fan of yours. That was a great meal. Good job. Way to go. High five. Man, you've made my laundry amazing. It smells fantastic. Awesome. Way to go. You know, I'm a real fan of yours, but there's a handful of times that I ain't so much a fan of you. 
And so in those times, I'm gonna I'm gonna go find another team to root for. How's that discussion gonna go, guys? And why is it that we think that Jesus Christ can be one that we just kind of take and leave and take and leave on our own terms, in our own ways, however we want? Last I checked. He is said to have been God in the flesh in the scriptures. And if that is true, if he is God in the flesh, then he deserves your commitment. He deserves your allegiance. No matter what. The reason I believe, without a doubt, that the resurrection happened is because of how good the church has suffered for 2,000 centuries. Last Sunday, there were bombs that went off in Egypt in a Coptic church and killed 75 people who were at church worshiping Jesus Christ. And they join a long, long, long list of people who have died for Jesus And the one thing that the Romans could not get their head around throughout the years of the church, when it was outlawed, it was illegal to be a follower of Jesus. The one thing they couldn't understand is whenever they killed them, there were more. Whenever they killed them, they would sing. They would willingly give their life instead of give up Christ. And it was the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs has always been the seed of the church. That's why I believe. You see, disciples would have never died for a lie. I hope and pray that if you are on the fence with these things, or you don't know what you think, or you're a bandwagon fan, wherever you're at, I pray that you would spend some time thinking about these things. If you have a Bible, read the book of Matthew. And get to this last chapter and see if you can commit to follow Christ. Well, let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these folks. I pray that each of us, wherever we find ourselves, the doubts that crowd our brains sometimes, that you would help us To make the commitment to follow Christ. We thank you that Jesus Christ. Conquered the grave. And now there is nothing to fear. Because death itself has been destroyed. And those of us who. Live and follow Jesus. Know for certain that one day. We will rise again from the dead too. And we will be forever with Christ. Holy Spirit. Convinces of these truths. Lord if there is anyone here today who has not accepted you as their Lord and Savior. Would you just allow them in the quiet and stillness of their own heart to say these words after me. Heavenly Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I am in need of a Savior. And I trust that Jesus Christ died on the cross in my place to defeat the power of evil in this world. And I believe that he rose again from the dead to demonstrate his authority and power even over the power of death. And that through him, I have new life. 
I commit myself to you. I commit my ways to you. I commit my life to you. And those who have prayed that, Father, we thank you for those you are adding to your kingdom daily. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction? Christ is risen. Yeah, let's try that again. We're not Episcopals. I get it. I understand. Christ is risen. From Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought you up from dead, from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, and ratified an eternal covenant with his blood, may he equip you with all you need for doing his will. May he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory to him forever and ever. Amen.